dear Father. That is who you are, a miracle worker in each life here, Father. First and foremost, in the gift that you've given us through your son Jesus and the faith that brought it to bear in our lives. We thank you for the miracle in our hearts of being born again in a new life. I thank you for the miracle, Father, of your body gathered with gifts aplenty, the presence of the Spirit in all of us here, Father, working to minister to one another. And I thank you, Father, for the service of those who have led us in worship and are serving in our children's ministry and around this building, Father, in many ways. We thank you for that. Father, I pray for each heart here. As we prepare to enter into your word, Father, I pray that you would be speaking to each of us individually. For each of us come with different needs, different expectations, perhaps uh, different thoughts and, and beliefs. But Father, you can unify us in one spirit by your word, and I pray for that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Welcome, guys. Thanks for being here. My name is Steve. I'm the pastor. I'm here to teach you the Bible, and I'm hoping that you're ready to learn. We're in Matthew chapter 27. Open your Bibles with me, and the morning's lesson that we're going to get into today covers material that, you know, for some may be a little difficult. I alluded to this last week when I mentioned we were getting into the crucifixion of Christ. It's just 40 verses in Matthew's gospel. It tells the story of his crucifixion from start to finish in a relatively short time. We're going to cover it in a few weeks. We're going to focus on uh, details that I think are often misunderstood or overlooked. Last week when we concluded our study, we were at the moment where Pilate was washing his hands of the decision to send Jesus to the cross. Today we're going to pick up again at that point in the scene. And as we go forward in these 40 verses, I want to focus on uh, several key aspects of the story. First, I want us to understand, at least to some degree, what Jesus experienced. Although obviously, you know, we can't fully appreciate the horror of what it was like. And I intend to explain the circumstances in some detail, yes, but I'm not going to dwell on the, the gore any more than is necessary. Here's our purpose in that. Our purpose is to understand what happened sufficient to appreciate why it had to happen that way. And the second thing I want to do as we go through this is understand the question of why did he need to suffer in the first place on his way to death? You know, I raised this question a few weeks back, and at that time I said there were two uh, reasons in Scripture why Jesus' suffering had to happen in addition to his atoning death on the cross. I gave you one of those reasons out of Second Peter last time, and today we're going to look at the second reason for why that had to happen. And then thirdly, what we're going to do as we study through the account of the crucifixion is pay a lot of attention to the timeline, to time references here, because we need to reset our understanding on several things within the story. The church, in my experience, has adopted a a number of traditions in how we remember Jesus' death. We remember it every year at Easter, etc. And many of those traditions are just simply wrong. They are not scriptural. They are not based on what the Bible says. So this is our opportunity as we study to take note of time and place references and get the story right. So that's one of the, the goals we have. So speaking of timeline, let's start there this morning. And that is, I want to remember where we've been before we get back into the text. Where we've been in terms of the events, the timeline of events in this week in Jerusalem. And I've got some slides again to show you here. Uh, let's start with what we were looking at a few weeks back. You remember this is a way of representing that week, and the blue there represents the night periods of each 24-hour day, and the yellow represents the daytime periods. We learned in our earlier parts of this study that 
Jesus originally enters into the city of Jerusalem on a Sunday, on what we call Palm Sunday, riding a donkey or having the palm branches on the ground in front of him and all of that. He goes directly into the temple on Sunday, and for the next three days after that, a total of four days, Jesus spends teaching in the temple. At night, he returns to Bethany on the backside of the Mount of Olives to sleep. And while he's in the temple, each day, the Jewish leaders, remember, they come to him, trying to trick him with questions, to discredit him before the people. And each day, Jesus deals with those challenges, putting them aside and showing that he is uh, innocent, sinless. And in all of that, he was fulfilling scripture, because remember, the Bible told Israel that before they could sacrifice their lamb at Passover, they had to bring that lamb into their home for four days and inspect it to make sure it was spotless. Well, Jesus' home, the Father's home, is the temple. So he spent four days in his home, so to speak, being inspected and found spotless. We covered that, as you remember. And then we get to the day of Passover on Thursday. So let's zoom in on that day, the day of Passover this week. And on the night before, on the day actually before Passover, Passover starts on a night, just like every Jewish day, starts in the evening. So on the Wednesday before Passover, we learned that the average Jewish family was bringing their lamb into the temple to be sacrificed by the priest so that they could then take that animal home that night. And then after sundown, when Passover began, they would have their family Passover meal, eating that lamb that was killed on the day prior. Now, because all the lambs were being killed on the day before Passover, that necessitated a Passover sacrifice during the daytime on Thursday. And so the nation had adopted a practice of having one lamb sacrificed on the morning of Passover, on Thursday of this week, that one lamb would be essentially the national Passover lamb. It would take the place of all the other lambs because none of them were sacrificed on the actual day. Some similar to us having a national Christmas tree, if you will. So we learned that in the past. And on that same night, the night of Passover, while Jewish families around the city were eating their Passover lamb, Jesus was having his Passover celebration that night with the disciples. We call it the Last Supper. All right? And then, after that, he leaves the upper room in the city of Jerusalem with his disciples. They go to the Mount of Olives to a garden called Gethsemane. While he's there praying, he's arrested by the Roman cohort. We studied that. And then, of course, that leads to the trials on that evening into the wee hours of what is now Thursday morning. Uh, He is tried by Annas and Caiaphas. And then finally, at daybreak, around 6 a.m., he's delivered to Pilate for the Roman trial. That's where we've been, right? All right, so this, this is the timeline we've studied so far, that Jesus is now standing with Pilate at 6 a.m. He's been found guilty on all charges despite being innocent, and Pilate declared him as much. Now we pick up there. And according to the Gospels, there are going to be three key markers in time that uh, demark, uh, are kind of demarcations of the events from this point forward. Those three markers correspond to 9 a.m., 12 p.m., and 3 p.m., So as we go through the rest of the story, those will be the markers that get mentioned at various points along the way. So that's how the rest of our time on this day will get divided up. Now, where we are now in the chapter we're studying, chapter 27, based on what Mark tells us, we are almost at the 9 a.m. hour. That will be the exact hour that Jesus is nailed to the cross. And so we pick up there now with him having been condemned and preparing to move, carrying his own cross, as we remember, to that place, to Golgotha. So we start in verse 26 of chapter 27. It says, Then he, meaning Pilate, released Barabbas for them, 
But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and the reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him, and they took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him, put his own garments back on him, and led him away to crucify him. All right, so after he fails to convince the crowd to release Jesus, Pilate now reluctantly agrees he's going to release this career criminal Barabbas. Last week, you remember, we learned that this man's real name was Yeshua, son of the father. Barabbas in Hebrew, Bar-Abbas, means son of Abba, Abba's father. So his name was actually Yeshua, son of the father. And that is the same basic name as Jesus. Jesus is also Yeshua, the son of the father in heaven. And the reason God arranged for these two men to stand opposed to one another with similar names was to make the point that one, Barabbas, represents one side of humanity, the guilty, that is, everyone who's descended from Adam, who are all dead in their sins. That's our representative, if you will. And then on the other side of Pilate stood Jesus, who represents those who are born again, children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And the world faces this same choice all the time, day in and day out. You can either choose rebellion to God, as Barabbas represents, or you can choose righteousness found in Christ, as Jesus represents. And what's interesting about that moment is it also in, in how it turns out with Jesus going to death and Barabbas released, it's also a beautiful picture of the gospel. One man, Jesus, condemned though innocent and receives the punishment that he did not deserve so that the guilty could be set free. That's our story, right? So as Matthew says, Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. He also says it happens after he's scourged, you notice that he's scourged and then crucified and so in verse 26. But we know from the other Gospels that is not actually the correct order of the events here. Although Matthew and Mark both put it this way, they're just summarizing the whole of what happened. They're not really trying to give you the detail. John, who wrote his Gospel years later, comes along after these men to fill in those details for us. And what John tells us is Jesus was actually scourged at an earlier point in these events. Back in the middle of that back and forth with Barabbas when Pilate was trying to get the crowd to choose Jesus for release. When he first put Jesus in front of the crowd, they said, no, we want Barabbas released. Then Pilate had the idea that he should let Jesus be scourged at that point in the hope that it would induce sympathy from the crowd. And then he scourges him, brings him back before the crowd at that point, and asks a second time, who do you want, Jesus or Barabbas. Luke actually confirms this by saying that at a moment in the middle of that, uh, Pilate says to the crowd, I'm going to send Jesus away to be punished and then bring him back. And Luke doesn't say scourged, but we know what he's referring to. So it's only after he's been scourged that he comes back before the crowd and then is condemned and then led off to be uh, executed on the cross. So what you're learning is, if you look at the passage I just read, verses 27 through 31 actually happened before Jesus was condemned to death. So in that moment, Jesus is mocked by the Roman soldiers and he is uh, scourged as part of that process. Now, scourging is nothing short of devastating. It's a form of whipping, yes, but the Roman form of it was something different altogether. The Romans would scourge a prisoner using 
uh, a leather whip, so it had a, a hard leather handle, and it wasn't very long. If you've imagined it like Indiana Jones or something, that's the wrong image. Uh, it was probably only about 18 inches to 24 inches in length as far as the whip goes, and it had a, a handle with a series, five, six, seven, eight uh, strands of leather on the end of it. So it was a collection of these things. The soldier had to be very close to Jesus to whip him. And on the end of each of these leather strands, the Romans tied either a metal ball or pieces of sheep bone that were very sharp. And the effect, of course, was to severely lacerate the skin. The person would be stripped naked, totally naked, and then his hands would be tied to an upright post so that the person was forced to more or less stay upright. And two Roman soldiers would accomplish the scourging, one on either side, whipping from the side in an either left to right or right to left pattern across the back like this. And they would whip dozens of times, some unknown number perhaps. The Jews had rules on how many you could give to a prisoner. I'm not sure if the Romans did. And those metal balls or the sharp bone, they would tear away, they'd shred away the layers of skin, uh, exposing muscle, exposing bone, So besides the intense pain that the person felt, you had blood loss that would induce shock, unconsciousness, some even died just from the scourging alone. And that was actually the point. The point of all of this was to hasten the death process on the cross. Because an otherwise healthy person could be nailed to a cross and would survive for days. And the way the Romans performed crucifixion, they stationed a Roman soldier to guard the prisoners on the cross while they were alive. Well, they got impatient. They didn't like having to stand there for days. So they found that if they scourged the prisoner beforehand, it would shorten the process considerably. They might only last a few hours on the cross, maybe a day at most. And so that was the practice. And Jesus is scourged, we're told, in the midst of that back and forth with Barabbas. And when he comes back to Pilate, he is then finally condemned. Now, if you've watched movies on this, I mean, some of the latest ones Hollywood has put out, they've done perhaps a better job in some respect of trying to show the horror of scourging, but honestly, friends, they they don't even do it justice. There are scholars who've researched how this was done in, in all likelihood, and they have discovered that it was common for some of those strands of metal and bone to reach around and hit the face of the person. It's almost impossible not to. The effect would be the cheeks of that person would be torn to shreds by the whip, leaving the face horribly disfigured, unrecognizable. Scripture says that that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Isaiah tells us that just the sight of Jesus after the scourging was so appalling that observers couldn't bear to look at it. Isaiah 52, 14 says, Many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men, And then Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Isaiah says here that the people looked at him and they were astonished. The Hebrew really is is not giving you the full sense here, or the English translation rather is missing some of the sense of the Hebrew because the word for astonished is literally horrified. In Hebrew, they are horrified at his appearance because it says he was marred more than any man. The word for marred in Hebrew is literally disfigured. Disfigured. 
And he, so in other words, what you've seen in the movies just isn't there. I think I know why the movies wouldn't display this even if they knew about it because the actors don't want to have their pretty face messed up and they, they don't mind some blood dripping down their face but they don't want to see the full horror of it. And friends, this was truly horror. He was, Jesus was torn to shreds. He was disfigured. He was like something from a horror movie. Isaiah said people hid their face from him rather than look at it. They had to wonder how is this man even alive at this point? And yet, in this condition, we're told he's made to stand before the crowd, and then in verses 27 through 30, the peace I said happens uh, as part of the scourging. Roman soldiers add insult to injury. Despite his debilitated condition, they torment him with further beatings, a crown of thorns, mocking. They make him put clothes on and off that body that is torn to shreds. I mean, under most circumstances, that stuff's nothing more than childhood games, but Following a scourging, it's, it's inhumane. It's unbearable. It must have taken every ounce of Jesus' strength just to stay standing. And that's what you need to remember in all of this, that every detail in this process was ordained by God the Father to serve a purpose in his plan of redemption. And as we studied in earlier weeks, Jesus not only voluntarily gave himself over to it, but he withstood it without making any effort to shorten it or stop it whatsoever. And even the wearing of a crown of thorns, in this case, serves a purpose in God's plan, that God is at work in this plan. Genesis tells us that after Adam fell into sin, when the Lord finds Adam and woman in sin, there's a series of curses that he pronounces on humanity and on the condition of the world as a result of what came about in the garden. The primary one was a curse for death, remember? Because they ate of the fruit, they died spiritually, instantly. But physical death, the body's death, was not the result of Adam eating. The body died because God pronounced a curse on the ground, and all that come from the ground now, he says, will go back to dust. So the physical death of mankind was the result of the curse, which of course came after the sin of Adam. All humanity lives under the curse of death, we're told. But the Bible says Jesus takes that curse for us. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's the curse that Jesus took, the curse of hanging on a tree, that is dying in our place. But there are other curses spoken in Genesis, and Jesus took those too, And specifically in Genesis 3.17, we're told this. God says to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Remember that curse? The effect of that curse was very simple. Where before Adam had the luxury of working in the garden where everything was growing easily and without any concern or work on his part, now, because of the curse God pronounced, humanity would have to work hard to produce what it wants from the ground. And as we try, we will get things we don't want, like thorns and thistles. And in this moment, Jesus wears a crown of thorns so that in a picture, symbolically, He is accepting the curse on him in our place. So just that detail, even that little piece of torture is God-ordained to make clear what the meaning of the moment is for us. Jesus standing in our place accepting the curse that God pronounced for sin. So everything that's happening here is happening according to God's purpose. And Jesus, for his part, is accepting all of it in obedience. 
But seeing this moment in all its horror, the suffering that Christ had to experience, keeps coming, bringing us back to that same question I posed earlier. Why did Jesus have to suffer so much on his way to die for the sins of the world? I've said it to you this way, I think. Why couldn't he have died in his sleep? I mean, the death of Christ alone is the atonement. So why the suffering in advance of it? Last time I raised this question, I gave you one of the answers, and I gave it to you from what Peter writes when he says that Jesus was setting an example for us in how suffering should be approached by a Christian. Suffering for righteousness' sake. Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And when that happens to us, whatever way it comes, we're supposed to look back on how Jesus suffered in his own circumstance of unjustly receiving persecution. What did he do when people came against him for being righteous? And the answer is, he submitted to it willingly, knowing it was the will of God. And in that willing submission to suffering, he could become useful to God in some good work. Obviously, in Christ's case, it was for the work of redemption. But in our case, it will be for another kind of work, but in some way, a witness, a testimony, an encouragement, something will be useful in what we do as we respond in obedience to suffering. That was the first reason. Today, you get the second one, and the second one comes from Paul's letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 3, Verse 24, now if you want to look there with me, it might be helpful, you don't have to, but it's in 324. Paul at a point in that chapter as he's talking about the gospel, he he moves to this interesting comment about the suffering of Christ and its part in the gospel. He says, we are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And typical Pauline form, it's a little convoluted. Let me break it out for you. Paul starts by saying, we're justified. That's a way of saying we're declared not guilty of our sins by God because Christ redeemed us. And redeeming in the Bible is a way of saying paying the price that is required to set someone free, to set them free of a penalty, to set them free of bondage. They are bought out of that. Jesus is the one who paid the price to redeem us from under a curse, from out from under the bondage of sin. All right, that's how we all got saved. And what was the price that Jesus had to pay to redeem us? The price is his blood, which is a reference to his sacrificial death, followed by his application of his blood on the mercy seat in the heavenly tabernacle. In the heavenly realm, there is a tabernacle, the Bible says, and there's a mercy seat in there, and that's where his blood was applied, and in its application, once for all, he has paid the price for sin for those who accept that payment. Now, that tells you something. It tells you that he didn't have to suffer for that purpose. He could have died in his sleep. He still would have been atoning for our death by paying that price, taking the curse, and then applying his blood in the heavenly place. That could still have happened. But Paul says in chapter 3 of Romans that he had to be displayed publicly dying in order for him to be understood to be a propitiation. Here's what he's saying. The word propitiation means to appease or satisfy anger, righteous anger. 
Let me give you an example. Let's say for an example, a husband happens to forget his wife's 30th birthday. Totally theoretical. It turns out that makes the wife very angry. And at that point, you have to appease the anger. You have to satisfy the anger. So you find something that she will accept as, a, as a, an acceptable payment. That is, you, know, you buy her something nice, you take her out, you give her an I'm sorry card, you, 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 know, you pay for it for a decade or more, but then you finally, <laughs> finally you make up for it with a surprise birthday party on her 40th birthday. <laughs> that process of satisfying anger is propitiation. But here's the thing with propitiation. The person who is offended gets to decide what will satisfy them. Right? You can't turn around to someone and say, well, I'm sorry I upset you. I'm going to buy myself a car. I hope that makes you feel better. No, it wouldn't have any effect, right? Because it's not up to us. That is why we cannot decide for ourselves how to satisfy God. The Bible says clearly that God will accept only Christ's death as an appeasement, as a propitiation for us. That's why not all roads lead to heaven. That's why you cannot work your way to heaven. You don't get to decide what God will accept as a proper satisfaction for your sin. He decides, and what he decided is that his son's death alone is his propitiation, his acceptable payment. All right, so in Romans 3, Paul says this, that God wanted us to understand that. So, think about it. If Christ had died in some other way, like he dies in his sleep, he's secretly shuttled away, his blood is applied in the heavenly, we never see or hear any of it, never see his blood, never see his death, all we know later is an apostle says, because that happened, you get to be scot-free of your penalty. You don't have to pay your price. It would still be true, but how would you know? How would you know? In other words, without a public display of God's wrath against sin, you neither understand what propitiation required, nor do you understand that God was working to achieve it in Christ. In fact, Paul says in Romans 3, he would not have been perceived as just, as righteous. We see God as being just because he has done what was required for sin, but he did it in Christ and not in us. That's why Paul says he can be seen as both just and the justifier, that is, the one who sets free those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Now we can see it, right? You can now see the effect of sin. You can see in the disfiguring, bloodied abuse that Jesus took, the visceral wrath of God. Now, I am not suggesting that his suffering was sufficient to cover what you would have experienced had you gone to your grave without faith. No, you would have had an eternity of suffering. I'm not trying to equate the two. Neither is Paul. The point was to make a demonstration, Paul says in verse 26. It's a demonstration of his righteousness. It was an attempt for him to show us what sin requires so that we can understand the value of what Jesus offers. That's why he had to suffer publicly. God cannot turn a blind eye to sin. Sin deserves God's wrath, but Jesus took it for us. And you see that in his experience. You're forgiven because Jesus stood there and took the death process for you, the wrath of God for you, the justice that you deserve. He took it. 
And Paul says he was suffering greatly and publicly so that you would understand that when God overlooked, as Paul says, the sins committed in the past, he was doing so justly for having poured it out on Jesus. So we see that suffering. It disturbs us. I described it so you'd understand a little of what it was like. And you may not like to hear it, but here's the thing. God does not want you to forget it. Because the sin that made that treatment necessary is not just the sin you did last year or the sin you did before you were saved. It's the sin you're going to do later today or tomorrow. I want you to allow the appreciation of Christ's suffering to cause you to pause the next time you contemplate a moment of sin. I'm not suggesting you're piling on the suffering. The suffering has happened and it's over. But by the same token, should you give more cause for it? Have you struggled enough against it in light of what it took to cover it? The writer of Hebrews says it this way in a caution to the church. He says in Hebrews 12.1, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And yet you've not resisted to the point of shedding blood in striving against sin. It's a very convicting message if you understand what he just said. He said, Jesus endured hostility and he fought against the temptation to avoid it. Think about that for a minute. We've talked about this before. He had at the At any moment, Jesus could have called down a legion of angels. One word out of his mouth, and the whole thing stops. Do you not think when he's tied to that post and his cheeks are getting shredded that he's not thinking to himself, I'd like to put an end to this right now? That that was his temptation to sin. You think you've been tempted to sin? What do you think you'd feel like if you were in his situation under those circumstances? That was temptation, and he withstood it. He fought back against that temptation. And then the writer says, you know why he was doing that? It says, so that we would not grow weary and lose heart in our own struggle against sin and become entangled by it. If you think that you've done enough in your life to resist the sin that is still in your life, whatever it is, the writer says, you haven't resisted to the point of having your face shredded, have you? That's what he means when he says to the point of blood. He's talking in reference to the whole of the crucifixion. He's saying, you think you've worked hard enough at it? Think about how hard Jesus worked on your behalf in that moment to avoid sin so that he could go to the cross spotless and be an acceptable sacrifice. You have not suffered as much. And it's not a game. It's not a challenge. You're not supposed to try to suffer. The point is this. Every time we face that moment, we ought to reflect on what it took to put us into grace in the first place and ask ourselves, can we do a little better? Can we resist a little more the temptation to fall into our common patterns of sin? Now, here's the good news in all this. You can fail, and it's not going to change where you're headed because Christ did the work, right? We understand grace. You're not working your way to heaven, and you're not keeping your salvation by your work. That's not even the point. The point is, knowing what was done for you should change how you live now in light of it and fight hard against the temptation. Now, you know, the power to stop sin in your life is not yours, It's the spirit working in you. Your job is to yield to that leadership 
in your heart. And yielding is a two-part process. You have to crucify your own flesh, putting aside the temptations, fighting back against what it wants, and then do what you've been told in Scripture by the power of the Spirit. So it's kind of a stop yourself and yield process. But what we're learning is the pain, the suffering, the grotesque disfigurement of Christ was God's demonstration to you of what wrath for sin looks like and knowing it's been poured out on him instead of us should give us cause to live differently for the sake of our testimony and out of nothing more than a thankful heart. Let me encourage you in that this week. You always know your pastor or your preacher is going to tell you you shouldn't sin. I'm trying to see, show it to you from the scriptures in a way that gives you some motivation to actually try it and do it. Back in the text, Matthew verse 31. We're told Jesus is led away to the cross, and at this point, I, w- I want to go back to our timeline for a moment, because I want to clear up a little misconception. This is one of those moments I said we were going to get, a misconception clarification. You commonly hear people saying, Jesus died on a Friday. The Bible, though, never names the specific day he died. You will not find that written anywhere in the Bible. The reason it came to be the belief of the church in many circles is because there are references to Jesus dying on a day of preparation before a Sabbath. And of course, we know that the Sabbath in Israel, in Jewish custom, is always held on the Saturday, Friday night to Saturday night. And so those who read those statements in the gospel, they come away assuming that because the next day was going to be a Sabbath day, uh, then that means Jesus must have died on a Friday. Uh, And that is just not true. Uh, A day of preparation in the Bible, a day of preparation means the day before a Sabbath because when you have a Sabbath day, you can't work, which means you can't prepare meals, you can't light fires, you can't go draw water. Things you need to do, you can't do. So what people did was they did them in advance. They did them on the day before, prepared everything they needed for the next day, and so the day before Sabbath became known as a day of preparation in that sense. All right, so we know Jesus died on a day of preparation, according to Scripture. We know the next day was a Sabbath. That much is true. But you have to understand something about how Passover as a feast worked, how the Jewish feasts worked, to understand why that doesn't mean he died on a Friday. And here we go back to some charts. First of all, the Passover celebration every year happens on a day called the 14th of Nisan. Nisan is a Jewish month that roughly corresponds to March or April in our calendar. It moves around from year to year. But it's always the 14th of the month of Nisan. And in the law that God gave to Israel, which stipulates the Passover, they're also told that on the day after Passover, they would have another feast, a separate feast. And that separate feast is called the Day of Unleavened Bread or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a seven-day feast that follows the Passover every year. So on the Passover... Uh, On the night of the Passover, that's when we had the Last Supper. We just saw that earlier. On the morning, the daytime of Passover, is when Jesus is sacrificed. That much we know as well. And then the very next day starts the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now the law also says that the Feast of Unleavened Bread will always begin and end with Sabbath days. So the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, by law, by how God stipulated it, of, of Sabbath. It doesn't matter what day of the week it falls on. So no matter what day of the week the first day of Feast of Unleavened Bread starts, that day will be a Sabbath. And then at the end, another one. But because these are not the weekly Sabbath, they're not the Saturday Sabbath, they're just a feast day Sabbath, they're called high Sabbaths, or you can shorten it, high days. So high days or high Sabbaths are the way that the Bible refers to a Sabbath that's happening 
on a day other than Saturday because a feast requires it, okay? So that's, we get confirmation from John's gospel that that's what's going on in this year, that Jesus died on a day of, of preparation because the Passover was a day of preparation every year. Think about that. If the day after Passover is always a Sabbath because that's the first day of unleavened bread, then the day of Passover is always a day of preparation. It does not matter what day of the week these things fall on. Passover is always a day of preparation for the next day's Sabbath. John says this, speaking of the day Jesus hung on the cross. He says the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, meaning a high day Sabbath, they asked Pilate that the legs be broken and prisoners taken down from the cross. So that, that is John's confirmation for us that we're looking at a high day Sabbath on the day after Jesus died. Do you know what that means? That means that Jesus could have died on any day. The next day was a Sabbath no matter what. But it tells us something else. Do you know of the seven days you have to pick from, there is one of those seven days that he could not have died on because of this. I'll give you one guess what day is impossible. Friday. Because if he had died on a Friday, the next day would not be a high Sabbath, it would have been a weekly Sabbath, a regular Sabbath. Because John specifically calls it a high Sabbath, he calls that out in order to make sure you understand why it was happening. That tells us it is not Saturday. The one day he could not have died on is Friday because the next day is not Saturday. It is a high Sabbath day. All right? And then, just to finish this off, the next... The question then is, could he die on a Friday? No. So then, what day did he die on? Now, we're going to get back to this, because at the beginning of chapter 28, we're going to come back to this and finish this, and I'll show you why it is we know he died on a Thursday. Now, I'm telling you that now, but I'm, I'm going to show you why next time we get on this topic. But in the meantime, just to fill this out, you can, I guess, trust me for now if you want, he dies on a Thursday, Friday is a Sabbath. Well, guess what the next day is, is for Israel after that Friday? It's a normal weekly Sabbath. And in this case, it means that on the year Jesus died, there were two Sabbaths back to back. And yes, that can happen. Just because you have high Sabbaths doesn't stop the regular Sabbath. So God orchestrated it so that Jesus' death required no one visit the grave until those two Sabbaths were finished, which puts you on Sunday morning after the resurrection, which is also the feast of first fruits that year. First fruits is another feast that is always the first day of the week after Passover. Sunday is the first day of the week. So, in the year of Christ's death, God orchestrated it so that no one could disturb the grave until Jesus was gone. All right, now, this may surprise you. I mean, obviously, many in the church still follow a tradition of Good Friday, right? The day we remember that Jesus died. But now you can see that tradition is entirely inaccurate. We have been remembering the wrong day picked basically because of a misunderstanding out of what the Sabbath day meant in the Gospels. And I say to you, this is probably the single greatest misconception in all of the story of Jesus' death. In fact, if you asked 100 Christians today, what day did Jesus die on, how many do you think would say Friday? 95? 98? 100? And yet, they would all be wrong. And the fact is so simple and obvious in the scripture, it's staring us in the face. Remember, there is no verse that says he died on Friday. That's not in the Bible. All that they got was this idea that if it's a day of preparation, the next day must have been Saturday, without thinking more deeply about what goes on in the week of Passover. 
And you may think to yourself, well, I know a lot of smart people that think it's Friday. Clearly, Steve's missing something. Friends, you're underestimating how powerful tradition can be in overruling our view of Scripture. And you may be wondering at this point, well, I think you're making a little big deal of this, Steve. It's really not that big a difference, right? It didn't change my life very much. And I will certainly acknowledge this is insignificant for the most part, mostly harmless, I, I agree. But it's also an example of a much bigger issue, a much more serious issue that does impact you as a Christian. And that issue is, if you trust tradition or teachers in general without studying this for yourself, you're in trouble. I mean, at some point, now at first you only might miss some small things like this, right? Somebody tells you it's, it's Friday and it's not, okay, you can miss that. But friends, you will just as assuredly fall prey to bigger error too because here's the thing, you won't know the difference. If you're not in the habit of studying this at the level we're talking about, then one day it is, hey, he died on the wrong day. You know what the next day it is? The next day is someone telling you if you give money to the church, God will give it back to you seven times. Or, as I've encountered as I've traveled in my teaching around the world, people in other parts of the world are being taught that because Cornelius and his whole household was saved, if one person in a family is saved, you're guaranteed everyone else in the family will be saved. They call it household salvation. False teaching. And they believe it. And the shame of it is, these people being misled end up disappointed, discouraged, and hurt. Not by God, not by the Bible, but by false teaching and a reliance on false tradition. Uh, I've seen this in families, and families, if you've got young kids or teenagers, listen to this. I have seen cases in which the family, being Christian, taught the kids what they were being taught in church by tradition or whatever came along. They didn't check the Bible, and those kids are not dumb. Most kids are not dumb, and they find out sooner or later that what mom and dad was telling them, that wasn't true. Unfortunately, in some cases, those same kids look to that as opportunity to rebel against the whole of it. Right? How much else is wrong? How much more of it is a lie? Oh, it's all just made up. Look, you can't trust anything in the church anymore. You want to discourage a kid? You want to make him cynical? Feed him tradition. Because when it fails, according to the word of God, that child will look at you and they'll question everything. And rightly so. Let me suggest to you that we are all carrying, potentially, bad assumptions, bad traditions, and bad teaching that we have collected over the years from, in some cases, well-meaning, though misled, leaders and teachers. And in other cases, maybe just charlatans, but sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. And don't think that because you grew up in church, or you have gone to a Bible church, or even that this is a Bible church, don't think that you are immune. Let me ask you, how many of you walked in here today thinking that Jesus died on a Friday? I don't want to see a show of hands. (laughs) The first service is more compliant. There were people raising their hands all around. No, no, it's fine. Ask yourself why you believe that. How did you come to that understanding? Did you study to arrive at that? I doubt it, because if you had, you wouldn't have gotten there, right? You believed it because someone told you, and I get it. And you know what happens after that, of course, is someone codifies it with a term, Good Friday, they make it a holiday, and all of a sudden, it's cemented at that point. I mean, you know, who's going to challenge it once it's become that ingrained in our culture? Friends, there are other misconceptions running around the church right now that are just the same, coming from the same kind of misconception and lazy scholarship and our tendency to repeat what we've been told. And let me tell you another little thing. We tend to believe the first thing we're told, and if the second thing is actually the truth, 
That source has to work doubly hard to convince us because once we grab onto something, we tend not to let it go. Don't think the first thing you hear is the truth. Study, right? The only way you move beyond a susceptibility to that kind of nonsense, and again, I realize today's example is minor. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm saying it's indicative. It's illustrative of what can happen. Don't think that it can't happen to you. The solution is you have to have a teachable heart and you have to study the Bible. There is no other way. And I have found people that have had a teachable heart, but they won't study their Bible, and those are people who are susceptible to getting their teaching from anywhere. They'll just as easily take something from Oprah as they will from what they hear in their church. They'll watch TBN and every other channel they can find, and they, 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 they collect this amalgamation of nonsense, which is a mixture of Scripture and who knows what else, and their lives just sort of wander to whatever the latest teaching is. Friends, you don't want to be that person. But I've also found the opposite, and it can happen in a Bible church. I find people who love to study the Bible, and they do it a lot, but they do not have a teachable heart. And those are folks who will reject out of hand anything you tell them. It is not what they already want to believe. And I hope there's no one like that right now with respect to this issue. Jesus did not die on a Friday. I'm sorry. If you lived your whole life thinking he did, guess what? You get to be correct now. It's a good thing. You get to move past an error. You don't have to hold on to it. It's not a pride thing. No one's going to judge you. It's okay. Accept what you read. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 that we would do well to pay attention to the Bible in this way. He says this. Listen to this. And he uses an analogy that is so beautiful. He says in 2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word made more sure. And he's talking about the whole Bible. We have this word made more sure to which he says you would do well to pay attention. And then he uses this analogy, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And then he says, you do it until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts, meaning that's a reference to Jesus' second coming. (laughs) So the simple point is, do it and don't stop. Now look at that analogy again. He says, you want to look to the word of God, pay attention to it in the way you do a light in a dark place. Think about a moment where you might have gone into some incredibly dark place, a cave, I don't know, a closet somewhere, and the only light you have is a flashlight. And ask yourself this, where does your gaze fall? Where do you put your eyes? Isn't it where the light is, right? That's the only reason. I mean, where else would you look? What's the point of having the light? So where the light goes is where your gaze goes. You focus your attention on the light. And if you wanted to see something that's in the corner, what do you do? Do you leave the flashlight alone and then you walk over into the dark and you grope around looking for what you're looking for? No. You you move the light to where you want to look And then you can see what it is you're trying to see. That's what Peter says we should be doing, metaphorically, with the Bible. This is the light of the knowledge of God given to us. So when you want to see something, which is to say, when you want to know the truth about something, look at the light. Your gaze should be in the light, not in the darkness. You know, the the world around you is filled with darkness in this sense, metaphorically. False information, confusing information. If you go to Dr. Phil, or if you go to TVN, or if you go to the internet, and and then finally, oh, I'll check what the Bible has to say, who's to say what you're going to end up with at the end of that process? That is not how you find the truth. Similarly, when you do want to move your attention to some dark corner, something you don't understand. Maybe you're in a bad place. You need to know about what God says in some issue in your life, some problem, some struggle, some confusion. And that's equivalent to looking in the dark corner of that closet as I use that analogy. What do you do? Do you go groping in the corner or do you move the light 
so to speak? That is, do you turn to the places in the Bible that are addressing the issues that you're facing and let that movement to where the light is inform what you're trying to learn? If that's not your practice, you're missing out. You're missing out. Peter says, we have confidence to pursue the word because we know it is not a work of men by their own knowledge or thought. It is a work where the Spirit moved somebody to write it. It is literally the word of God. God the creator wrote this and gave it to us. What a powerful tool it must be. This word came from God. That's why, friends, this church exists. That's why my ministry exists. That's why I stand behind this box every week. Right? You've heard me say this before. When you teach the Bible... Good things happen. But there's a corollary, right? When you listen, when you learn, the good things can come to pass. It's not just a one-way process. There has to be in you a desire to know what this says. If I did not believe what this says and in the power that it has to change your life, I would not be doing this. And I'm here to tell you that it has that effect. I've seen it in my own life. There's a lot more we're going to cover in this story. And there are some misconceptions yet to Address, But let me be clear, our purpose in these little misconceptions is not just for the sake of getting better answers to questions. The goal of this is to reaffirm for you that there is truth in this word and it cannot be changed by anybody. It is not beholden to anybody's tradition or denomination. It exists without respect to anything we think or do. And we ought to be submitted to it. Maybe I'm preaching to the choir. That's why you're in this church, I guess. But just make sure we're on the same page here. This is, this is all about changing hearts. Not just collecting information. And I hope you're in this with me for that reason. We'll come back next week and we'll pick up where we left off. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, first Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of it in my life. I thank you for the power of it in this church. And I also thank you, Father, that your son suffered so much so that we would understand the power of what you offer in him to us. I pray, Father, for anyone in here that perhaps for the first time has heard that this gospel you offer, Father, is a a gospel of grace, of someone else paying a price for us that we couldn't pay, that it is a free gift and that they may accept it just by an agreement with it. I pray that that person, if they're here, Father, would acknowledge that in their heart and confess it with their mouth and be saved by it. And you'd give us the, the joy and the blessing to be a moment with them as they do that. For the rest, Father, who have that knowledge already, I pray that we have regained a new and convicted sense of duty to serving you without sin as much as we can manage so that we would honor the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Father, help us to find new and better ways to fight against the sin in our lives, Father. I pray this in the full confidence you can work in us to accomplish that outcome. And in the name of Jesus, amen.